scripture reading this morning, the sermon text is Revelation chapter 21. We'll read verses 1 through 12, then verses 22 to 27, and then Revelation 22 verses 1 through 5. Revelation 21 verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. And showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And now skipping down to verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is God's word. And we've taken a part one, part two approach to these texts that I just read. And in the providence of God, uh, I 
I can think of other texts, but I don't know, I can think of a better text to be in during this particular season that we're in uh, than these because of where these texts take us. Uh, They take us to a place where all trouble is uh, finally out of reach. Things like coronavirus and everything like it. Wars and rumors of war, social distancing and the upheavals of kingdoms and governments. This text takes us further up and further in to where none of that will be anymore. And it doesn't take us there as an exercise in wishful or magical thinking, but because Jesus makes all things new. That's the declaration of this text, and it reverberates from the moment it was spoken all the way through eternity. We tried to square up with that truth last Sunday. In part one, we mined two expectations from these texts. Those two last Sunday were that creation gets renewed, and we also looked at conquerors get raised. Creation gets renewed, comes out of 21.1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 21.5, Jesus saying, behold, I make all things new. And then uh, uh, the conquerors get raised part is verse 7 of chapter 21, the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. That also includes daughters. Now, We also took last week those texts in Revelation 21 where we keyed. We also took Romans 8 and we paired Romans 8 with Revelation 21 because in Romans 8, which we were just in about a year ago, we get both expectations also there. Creation in Romans 8 is said to be groaning, waiting on its renewal, its redemption. And also it's in Romans 8 where we're called more than conquerors, which is an idea born from what it means to be loved with a love that raises the dead. So these two expectations we mined from Revelation 21, really set for us in other places in Scripture, and we looked at Romans 8 as one particular place. Now today in part two, same passages we were in last week, part two this week, I want to give you two more expectations. The first has something to do with the commerce of the eternal city, and the second has something to do with the healing in the eternal city. So we'll look first at the commerce of the eternal city, and second, we'll look at the healing in the eternal city. And last Sunday, I said we would account today for all these no more references. We get no more night, no more death, no more sea. Uh, what is all this about? We'll, we'll try to account for a little bit of that under the second heading today. So the first heading, if you're taking notes at home, You get uh, the commerce of the eternal city, and the second heading is the healing in the eternal city, and that will be our time in these two chapters for today. So first, the commerce of the eternal city. Now, by commerce, I mean what comes out of work. I mean working. I mean the fruits of human production, the yield of our working lives. Somebody says, well, now I thought heaven, I thought heaven was a place of rest. That's what I've always heard heaven to be. It's a place of rest. And it is that. But the fuller biblical picture of what is to come when God physically dwells forever with us in this city as it's described here is perfect rest alongside perfect work. Perfect work and perfect rest simultaneously. And this stands to reason. 
consider back to creation before the fall. You've got work and rest, both in creation before the fall, in the Garden of Eden. And so too when you come to the Garden City at the end, when creation is renewed from the fall. Perfect work and perfect rest. Now I tried to establish last week that the the new heaven and the new earth, new Jerusalem, the coming dwelling of God with us, all of this comes out of the renewal of creation, which is purified by judgment fire. Everything that has vandalized God's design purposes uh, for human flourishing, everything of sin and all its effects, including disease, it all has to go. And we reference that in verse 8. 21 verse 8, the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, cast uh, into hell. That is separated from the renewal of creation that's going to take place. Also down in verse 27, end of chapter 21, verse 27, nothing unclean will ever enter it, the eternal city, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. But I said last week, just as God did not abandon his son to the grave, but uh, raised his son, so too he doesn't abandon creation to judgment. So this idea we have, it's kind of dismissive, or it's all going to burn. That's, that's, that's really not um, meaning that uh, everything as we know it just goes into a burn pile. It's talking about the purifying aspect of judgment. Just as Jesus' body, Jesus' own life, death, resurrection has always been a, a, a sign of this. That just as Jesus' body was raised from the grave, so too physical creation gets renewed after undergoing judgment. This is the expectation, not just of John's vision, but if you go back and you look at the prophets and what they expected to happen and see. And we'll do that momentarily. So when New Jerusalem appears as a bride coming down the aisle adorned for her husband, when that happens, the old order of things has been put to death. It's been cast into hell so that the corruption and corrosion of the old order of things is socially distanced, appropriate place to use that reference. It's socially distanced from the experience of renewed creation. And yet... Here's something that is kind of staggering to consider, at least it has been for me in the last few years, because uh, I kind of grew up with a notion that it's all going to burn and it, you know, and, and what does it really matter that what you do here, except the only things that matter are what we do for eternity. And, and I understand that perspective, but as I've been saying, it's, it's a little dismissive in some ways, because what this text is showing us is that some of what gets produced within the old order of things. It's referred to here in the text as the glory of the nations. Chapter 21, verse 26. These fruits of commerce, in some way they go into the eternal city, this place where God dwells with us in physicality. Physicality means materiality, but not materialism. We established last week that the eternal city requires, its coming requires, not the canceling of creation, but its renewal. The great majestic phrase here, 
Revelation 21.5, behold, Jesus says, I am making all things new. But within the new are things recognizable from the old. Now, that's the staggering thing to consider. That's the thing that for the longest time, I didn't, I didn't really think about. It. I didn't really know. Within the new are things recognizable from the old. And I can parallel this with our personal redemption. I said last week, uh, think back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. It's a very familiar verse to a lot of us. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, a word from Revelation 21, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Behold, the old has gone, the new has come, but you remain you. So the new there in 2 Corinthians 5, that great statement of what's happened to us at salvation, the new there, and also in Revelation 21, means new in quality, not start over new. It's really magnificent to think that God doesn't junk this place. That wouldn't be good news to think that this place where we've lived our lives and and tried to make of, of the world something better than when we found it or, or got it, that it wouldn't be good news to think that he junks this place. What he junks is what has junked this place, which he's always delighted in from the very moment he made it to now and beyond now. That's good news. And that good news for creation is contained within our gospel. And it's not just these two chapters that set this expectation. I mentioned to you that I would take you back to a prophet to let you see kind of how this has been set before John's vision and revelation. These two chapters in Revelation, the final two, 21 and 22, they punctuate expectations of what's to come that are articulated throughout the Bible. One glowing place for this is Isaiah chapter 60. You can read it later. The prophet Isaiah lived some 800 years before the time of Jesus. And Isaiah is um, a go-to prophet for the apostles. So much of the Old Testament quoting that goes on in the New Testament writings are from Isaiah. In fact, last week I took you in 1 Corinthians 2 to see where Paul says, I has not seen ear has not heard what God has in store for those who love him. He's quoting Isaiah, Isaiah 64. Well, if you go back a few chapters before Isaiah 64, you get Isaiah 60, where Isaiah is given a vision from God of a renewed Jerusalem. He sees this renewed Jerusalem coming down, and it's at complete peace and and prosperity. And a man named Richard Mao, who used to be a a seminary uh, professor, evangelical seminary professor, wrote a short book on this. And his book is called, When the Kings Come Marching In, Isaiah and the New Jerusalem. I want to give you a little taste of what he says here. He shows in this book that Isaiah's vision bears similarities to John's vision here. Listen to Mao's words. He says, the Christian life is directed toward a city, a place in which God's redemptive purposes for his creation will be realized. He says, if we think of the future life as disembodied existence in an ethereal realm, just kind of floating around on a cloud, he says, and it's not that, he says, if we think of it that way, then it's difficult to think of our present cultural affairs in any sense, as a positive preparation 
for heavenly existence. But if we think of the future life in terms of inhabiting a heavenly city, we have grounds for looking for some patterns of continuity, similarity between our present lives as people immersed in cultural context and the life to come. And he says, I think the Bible encourages us to think in these terms. Excuse me. He says, quoting Revelation 21, the holy city comes down out of heaven from God. The Lord is its builder and maker. He's quoting Hebrews 10 there. The arrival of this city will constitute a radical break with the present patterns of sinful life, but not life and living as we know it. He says the holy city is not uh, discontinuous with present conditions. The biblical glimpses of this city give us reason to think that its contents will not be completely unfamiliar to people like us. In fact, the contents of the city will be more akin to our present cultural patterns than is usually acknowledged in discussions of the afterlife. Isaiah pictures the holy city in chapter 60 of Isaiah. The holy city is a center of commerce, a place that receives the vessels and the goods and the currency of commercial activity. Camels come from Midian, Ephah, and Sheba, carrying gold and frankincense, Isaiah chapter 60, verse 6. Verse 7 of Isaiah 60 says the city receives the flocks of Kedar and the rams of Nebaioth. Ships from Tarshish bearing silver and gold sail in the city's harbor, Isaiah 60, verse 9. And costly lumber, the cypress, the plain, the pine, is imported from Lebanon. That's verse 13 in Isaiah 60. Animal, vegetable, mineral, they're all brought into the renewed Jerusalem. The commerce of the eternal city. Look again at chapter 21, verse 24. By its light, 21, 24, by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. Gates not shut by day, glory of nations. What is this? It's commerce. It's the fruit of working. In some way, the produce All that's produced of human ingenuity and industry and culture making, in some way, it adorns that great city to come. Now, we don't build the city. Uh, The city is built for us by God. But, you know, those of you with uh, young kids at home, or in my case, uh, uh, a little grandson uh, running around who made his first uh, little uh, paper thing for us the other day. And where did it go? It went right on the center of our refrigerator. No museum would want uh, Huff's uh, little art creation where he scribbled on a heart that his mom drew and he stuck five stars on it out of a, out of a pattern, not in a, a straight line. No museum is going to want that. But to us, it is precious. It's the first thing that he's, that he's done like that. And so it went in a very prominent display there in our kitchen. And, and if, you, if you think that out exponentially in New Jerusalem, whatever goes into that place from here and now goes in uh, because God delights in his creation and he delights in his people who have made of his creation what we have. And it goes in. As verse 27 says of chapter 21, nothing unclean will ever enter. So it has to be 
refined. It has to be purified. It has to be stripped of any sinful use or idolatry. But we're still, the, the, the big point here is that we're still active and engaged there. In living, much like we are here and now, and commerce is my word choice to try to gather up this idea. Now, there's another place. That's Isaiah 60. Let me just give you one more place, and uh, we'll keep going with the text. One more place is Colossians chapter 3. I don't often cross-reference for you, but we're doing a little bit this morning because I don't want you to see Revelation 21 and 22 as just kind of this addendum to Scripture. A lot of what's here is the expectations were set in the Old Testament and even articulated in the New. Here's how Paul articulates this in Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Now, these are also familiar verses to a lot of you. Colossians 3, 23, whatever you do, and whatever is a big comprehensive word, whatever you do, but he's speaking of it in a context of working, whatever you do, Colossians 3, 23, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance. That's a fascinating word. In fact, inheritance in Colossians 3, 24 rings bells. In Revelation 21, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Why does Colossians 3.24 ring bells in Revelation 21? Well, look at Revelation 21.7. Revelation 21.7, the one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. Heritage and inheritance, inheritance the word from Colossians 3, heritage the word here in Revelation 21. Heritage and inheritance are very similar ideas. And the inheritance in Colossians 3 is tied to working. To what we give ourselves to in making and remaking the world. Which we call culture. All that, so much of what commerce is is, is indelibly uh, in culture. And so this making and remaking of the world and culture, the city to come, is where we live out the heritage of the resurrection in bodies that are now no longer susceptible to sin and its effects. It's still you. You as you go into that place. But in your resurrected body, God does not junk our physical being, nor does he junk what we've made of the earth physically, materially, though he does purify it. He purifies us through the gospel belief, through the blood of Christ applied to us, and he purifies creation and its effects of sin and selfishness and idolatry. And in some way yet to be experienced by any of us, life in the eternal city is perfect work and perfect rest simultaneously. And we get the rest part pretty good, but we tend to leave the work part out. But you know, Colossians 3, it's even more staggering in this consideration because Paul was also speaking there to work in the context of slavery, which is work degraded. The humiliation of the worker. Slaves back then could not inherit earthly possessions because they were themselves property. And so all their work 
was for someone else. Paul's greater point from that, continuing to bring Colossians 3 into our considerations here in Revelation, his greater point, which dovetails with John's vision here, is this. Paul's essentially saying all of our work has been for someone else all along. This is true of all of us. And so the faithful live and work here and now expectantly in whatever condition of life we're in now, even including the faithful who find themselves in the worst of conditions like slavery, whom Paul said, if you can get out of that condition of life, if possible, get out of it. It wasn't possible for most, though eventually the spread of the gospel overturned slavery systems because the gospel bears seeds of humanizing and equalizing people before God. But the reason... The reason the faithful have always lived expectant, and these texts in Revelation are setting our expectations of what's to come, and the reason that we've always lived expectant is not because we engage in wishful thinking, magical thinking, escapism. The reason that we live expectant as we do, expectant of God's greater reward for whatever condition of life we've been in, is because our gospel trains us to look beyond the thing itself to the reality informing it. Work can be degraded, yes. The worker can be degraded. But the mention of inheritance back in Colossians 3, when you tie it to heritage here in Revelation 21, it's for setting our expectations around something that is genuinely wonderful. Now I realize it's a different imagery from what a lot of us have heard about heaven being perfect rest and perfect rest only. But the biblical picture, when you take the prophets into account, the apostles, the vision of John, the biblical picture seems to be perfect work and perfect rest simultaneously, which sounds a lot like the original garden. Think about it astronomically, just to put it in another way. You know, how a lot of stars are bigger than our sun. Well, you can't see those bigger stars, though, until the sun has been out of the sky for a few hours. I I would suggest to you that Revelation chapters 21 and 22 contain the Bible's bigger stars on this point. But the way we live and work and move and have our being is is dominated by the particular sun that we we, uh, live in. And so... All the way back to Isaiah 60 and Colossians 3, the Bible's bigger stars. It expands our horizons. Texts like these do. And our expectations are set for what we are only now aware of. And believe in faith exists because we have good reason. Faith is good re- is, is the, the trust in what you have good reason to believe is true. There's, there's no, just this little aside here, there's no difference between faith and reason. Faith is trust in what you have good reason to believe is true. We have good reason on the authority of Scripture given uh, that it is the Word of God and the Word of God was made flesh and dwelled among us and now we get this dwelling of God here at the end of time as we know it, the perfection of time after that, which is eternity. We are told some marvelous things here. Our horizon is expanded. Our expectations set for what we are only aware of right now but we'll eventually live in. 
And so I, I know if you're thinking, listening to this, you know, I, I just can't conceive of a perfect work scenario of any kind. I mean, I've hated what I've done. Making a living. I've hated my job. It's not making a living there. Work is, is removed from the compulsion context that it's under now, which lends to the futility feelings of work sometimes and the drudgery. Perfect work is not busy work or grunt work. We'll be in our resurrected bodies. But active and living, contributing to what goes on in the eternal city, the gates of the city, verses 24 through 26 here in Revelation 21, the gates of the city are open daily for commerce of some kind coming and going because God wrote commerce into his original design. What happens in the commerce of the eternal city is that the frustration of work here and now, the humiliation of the worker, the emptiness of work, the failing at it, the sense sometimes of it's pointless. It's pointless to try to uh, get this company turned around. It's pointless to work with this patient anymore. It's pointless to, to preach to people Sunday after Sunday when, uh, uh, you know, some percentage of them don't really ever seem to believe it. Whatever it is in your particular work context, that's all removed. Just as work was there in the first garden, Eden, Genesis, chapters 1 through 3, work was there. Work gets subject to the curse, but it's not the curse itself. There's work there. Grow and tend the garden and tend to the animals. All of that is there, animal, mineral, vegetable in Eden. And Richard Mao says it's all there in New Jerusalem, the second garden, the garden city, the fruits of commerce. Eden returns. Maybe it's like a central park in that city. Maybe it's like Shelby Farms of the Eternal City with this river Chapter 22 describes running through it and the glory and the honor of the nation streaming in, God keeping something of here, there. It's beautiful. And so in a way yet to be experienced by any of us, and yet our expectations are trained for it, there's some recognizable linkage between what we know now and what we'll know then. What we give ourselves to here, making the world, and what we give ourselves to there in a world God makes for us that doesn't need our innovation or cultivation then, but he still has us productive in it. You know, another way of looking at it, it's kind of like you think of, I've said to you before, one of my old professors says three things will surprise us in heaven, who's there, who's not there, and that we are there. And I'm, and we all laugh, and I miss that laughter this morning when we, when we uh, are in here together. I'll, I'll trust maybe you're chuckling in your, in your living room. I don't know. Maybe you're getting Cheetos right now. But um, we sort of get this notion of heaven is like, you know, because we're there by grace, God doesn't want us touching anything. You know, we can see ourselves as having the grace of God lavished upon us in Christ and yet still have this sense of removal I really shouldn't be there, I know. And so God doesn't want me touching anything. Don't mess with anything. You know, boy, boy if that's your concept of heaven, I'm happy to blow that out of the water for you. Because the vision that we're given of a place of productivity 
is God wants our hands all over this. He wants us doing in his dwelling place with us. It really is a marvelous thing to think about. Now, I mentioned this river, a couple of words on this, and we're done. Today's second expectation, we get the, the first one was uh, the commerce of the eternal city, and now we go into the healing in the eternal city, the healing in the eternal city. Look at chapter 22 now, 22 verse 1, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. You've already had a reference to the water of life back in chapter 21 verse 6. Jesus says, come in 21 6, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Now chapter 22 picks up on that and, and literalizes it, if you will. There's this river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of, of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, the eternal city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, time increments. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Remember in Revelation, all the marking that happens. It's, just, it's a picture of ownership. The beast marks on the forehead. Jesus marks on the forehead. It's not some literal number kind of thing. It's a... It's a, it's a a statement of belonging, of ownership, of owning whoever owns us, owning their ownership of us. Verse 5, chapter 22, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. There's no place for darkness to go in the new city except out. Darkness goes into hell. That's why Jesus, when he images hell, he always uses fire and darkness. The eternal city is not a place of darkness. Darkness goes out into hell. So this river, no more night. You got all the no mores, no more night, no more sea. Remember we had that back in uh, 21 verse 1. Look at it again, 21 verse 1. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven, first earth that passed away, and the sea was no more. And you go, why not? What's wrong with the sea? What's God got against oceans? Not a thing. He made the seas. And they cover the globe. And he made them good. I, I did read a book last year called The Outlaw Ocean, where a journalist took five years to trek around the world to locate all of the illegal things that are happening at sea beyond international water borders. I mean, basically, if you're looking for anything disordered and depraved, you can find it on some ship at sea sailing uh, and serving that purpose. A lot of modern-day slavery is happening at sea. But it's really not that here in Revelation chapters 21 and 22. You go, what's God got against the sea? Why no more sea? I love beach vacations. I love going to the ocean. What's wrong with that? Nothing's wrong with it. We have to think of the imagery of the sea like the ancients thought of the sea. For them, it wasn't what was at sea or on the sea uh, that made no more sea a great expectation. It was for the ancients that the sea often symbolized evil. 
They couldn't get down to the depths of it like we can now with scientific instruments, little submarines and such. They didn't have all of that, of course. So remember when uh, Jesus' disciples are on the Sea of Galilee and they see him walking out to them and they think it's a ghost? Why would they go there? What, what's going on? Well, it's because of the associations made with the sea. Who knew back then what was far down under the fish, what was down under the water? And the sea was, was uh, this place that could go crazy on you suddenly. And it would, it would be, you know, tempest-tossed and, and people lost their lives there. What has Revelation shown us? In its imagery, it's shown us a dragon standing on the seashore. It's shown us a beast coming up out of the sea. It's shown us Babylon like a prostitute spread out over many waters with the merchants of the earth indulging themselves on her wares. All that imagery comes from Revelation. So by the time you get to Revelation 21.1, you get um, this reference to no more sea. It's not to ruin your beach vacation. It is to, instead, it is to say something about the global reach of evil being no more. That's the imagery. Everything that is no more, all the no mores you get are about every enemy set down, dethroned. That's why he wipes every tear from our eyes. That's why there's no longer anything accursed, Revelation 22, 3. That's why there's no more Death, every realm of rebellion eliminated when the eternal city drops. You say, yeah, but one of the no more things is the temple. Uh, Yeah, the temple occupied in first century was a place of rebellion. A place where rebellion against God and against his son, Jesus Christ, was fomented. So the point of the no mores is that everything that stands against God, everything that defies him is removed. Think about this also, and this gets us more specifically now into our second point. wanted to address the no mores. Our second point here is the healing in the eternal city. So let's think about healing. There's a river in the eternal city, but there's no longer a sea. Is there a significance to that? The seas are global. Again, Babylon covers many waters. That is the influence of of power structures set against God is global. The sea is everywhere, as it were, whereas a river is more localized. And so you see in chapter 22 that you've got this river, the river of the water of life. And verse 2 of chapter 22 says it goes through the middle of the street of the city and it supports this tree of life. With 12 kinds of fruit, all this imagery, Uh, the river and and the tree instead of a sea and forests galore. What's the point? The point is locality. When you read 22, 1 and 2, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, Also on either side of the city, tree of life, 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. The healing of the nations takes place in locality. It takes place in a place. The way the the nations access their healing now is through the gospel proclaimed 
to all nations. And as people believe from every nation, tribe, tongue, people, that image of heaven that we're given earlier in Revelation, as people believe, they become part of the vast kingdom of God that stretches all around the earth. But that vast kingdom of God has always been local to every believer. And you know this whenever you travel and you go somewhere else, maybe to another country, and you meet another Christian, you have an instant tie with them. You can go anywhere in the world and feel immediately at home with, with Christians. People with whom you have nothing else in common except Christ. What is that? The kingdom of God is vast, but it's also localized. It's around a person. In the eternal city, the localization has one address. It has the person of God, and it has the one address of God finally. The Hebrew word for city, we're in a Greek context here, but if you take the Hebrew word for city, tying the Old Testament to this, the Hebrew word used for city actually conveys small-scale locality. Now listen to this. The eternal city as we have it in Revelation 21-22, it's huge dimensionally. We didn't read the section of 21. It gives all its dimensions. It's huge dimensionally, but it's local, socially. And this gives us an angle on what the promised healing is really zeroing in on. This eternal city that all the redeemed of the nations go into, it's large enough to hold everyone, but local enough for everyone to be known. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love chapter at the end of that chapter? Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Think of all the loneliness in this world. Even people in the church are lonely. Think of all the rancor between people, the disgust people generate with one another. Think of all the spite and strife and conspiracy theorizing, which just keeps people at each other's throat, keeps driving wedges between people when people want to believe nonsense. Wars and rumors of wars, disease spreading that requires social distancing. What kind of healing does the world need? Well, immediately we need a cure for coronavirus. Lord's hastened that. Physical healing is always applicable to the here and now because this is the world in which disease can affect us. But life in the New Jerusalem is about what we might call proximate healing. Not so much physical healing as proximate healing. In other words, social healing. The healing of every injustice and disunity, which is social, all of it is social to the core. You know, I think I mentioned last week... Uh, C.S. Lewis portrays hell in his imaginative work, The Great Divorce. He, he imagines hell as this big, sprawling, condemned city. And it's sprawling because people can't stand each other. Jean-Paul Sartre, the, the French philosopher, hell is other people. C.S. Lewis literalizes that in his version of hell. People keep moving away from each other because they can't stand one another. There's no healing there. 
But the healing, the eternal city is for healing, and this healing is the restoration of everything broken, everything broken relationally, the renewal of everything corrupted, the righting of every wrong. It's the renovation of all collective human experience, what it means to be together. No more striving, no more envying, no more backbiting one another, no more misconstruing what people believe and think. It's not just a physical healing in resurrected bodies. The resurrection takes care of that. It's social healing then. That's the kind of healing the nations need most. And you know, the expectation for that comes prepackaged in our gospel because our gospel is about our need to be reconciled to God the Father, whom we have personally offended. We have to be reconciled to Him through the ministry to us of God the Son, applied to us by God the Spirit. And once that reconciliation happens, once a person is reconciled to God, the gospel goes on to motivate reconciling relational rifts between people. Look at Ephesians 2 sometimes. You get both. Between us and God, that relational rift is healed in Jesus, which is why we look forward to life with God in this amazing, incredible, eternal city. And though there remain conflicts, relational conflicts of all kinds, certainly in the world, even within the church, regrettably, Christ's own resources are made available. Not to succumb, so that we don't succumb to the same sprawling social fracturing everyone else accepts as a matter of course, but we give ourselves heart and soul, mind and strength to everything God has promised to be for us in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for teaching us through your word. Thank you for setting expectations which are glorious to consider. They're really beyond us. But thank you that everything we enjoy that's beautiful here and noble and good and thrills us it is a little foretaste of an experience to come that will be forever that to the hilt, exponential, without end, forever and ever. Amen.